Hello and welcome to the Rogue Report Lasses podcast in association with Sutherland Community Soup Kitchen and Her Game 2, the campaign against sexism and misogyny in football. You've just heard our theme music, Science, by the brilliant Sutherland band Big Fat Big, and I'm Charlotte Claxton, your host for today's podcast. Over the last few weeks, we've been keeping a close eye on Sutherland women and other clubs during this off-season with news of full-time football, change of sponsorships, transfers, all keeping us busy. But it would be remiss of us to forget and neglect the incredible tournament which just got underway over a month ago, the Women's 2022 Euros, taking place right here in the UK. So given the historic achievement by the Lionesses, we asked a special guest to join us on today's podcast. Most of us will likely be aware of this guest and the brilliant work they've done over the years in terms of following women's football and promoting it. With two successful books on the Lionesses and a third book just being released over a month ago. But as well as writing football books, this guest has also covered three Women's World Cups for the Times and Eurosport. So we could think of nobody more perfect to talk to us about the Lionesses, her new book Unsuited for Females, life as a sports writer and perhaps a little bit about her background. A big welcome to the podcast Carrie Dunn. How are you this afternoon? I am still floating on a cloud and thank you so much for having me and I'm going to be kind of just jabbering probably senselessly because I'm still absolutely thrilled about what we saw at Wembley last week. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I'm exactly the same all of this week when people have been talking about it, I'm still just in complete shock. Um, obviously the realisation is somewhat starting to kick in but just absolutely amazing. I mean, what a tournament that we've had. It's been incredible. It was a great tournament, I think, even if you were a neutral. But I think for an England fan, whether you're a long-serving England fan or someone who's come to it new this summer, I mean, what a thrilling final. What what a way to, to win. What a way to win a tournament. What a way to win a trophy. Just oh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. And again, thank you so much for taking time out after what I imagine has been a very busy, busy period for yourself um, to come and talk to us. It's greatly appreciated. So... Um, I suppose to start off, I mean, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? You know, um, how did you take up an interest in sports, you know, specifically football? Um, do you have a specific team that you've, um, you follow on? And how did you get into writing? Oh, that's, that's a really, really big question. I'm not going not gonna to answer it fully. We'll be here for the next three hours. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I've always been a football fan. Um, I grew up in Bedfordshire. And my nearest team was Luton, so I watched Luton um, as as a kid, as a teenager. I was a home and away girl, uh, and up to 2003, and um, I'd moved away. I'd moved to London for university by then, and I was involved in the Supporters Trust when we had a, a very strange takeover. Um, I'm not going to go into that because that's just completely <laughs> mad. But um, if any of you are interested, if you have a look on YouTube for Trouble at the Top and look for Trouble at the Top Luton, you can get a, get a small insight into what it was like. And up until about 2006, and I don't know whether you remember this, um, but Mike Newell was the manager of Luton then. And he was not very happy with a decision made by, I believe it was Amy Fern. Uh, who was running the line one day. And I believe his exact words were, um, what's she doing here? This is professional football. And it was just a kind of, there should be no women in professional football. And I was, 
At that point, because I'd moved away as well and I was coming backwards and forwards and it was costing me so much money because I was obviously a grown-up and not getting discounted prices by that point, I was kind of like, why am I wasting my time supporting this man's team when he doesn't think women should be here? And obviously I'd also started my career at that point. I was um, a very, very inexperienced football writer and I was just... I, I guess I was exhausted by that point. I was just like, I, I don't want to watch this man's team. I don't want to support him. I can't bring myself to cheer him because I was involved in professional football and I was thinking, if he doesn't think I should be there, then I won't be there. So I guess after that, it was kind of quite easy to detach and concentrate on football writing. But the funny thing is, I actually got my my first paid freelance work was writing for the Luton Club website. It was great. I did features every other week and I got to sit down with one of the players. This is the time kind of before so before Zoom calls and that kind of stuff. I would go to the ground every week, sit down with a player and talk to him for like an hour. Um, it was great. I loved it. But women's football... Um, this kind of stems back again to about the same time as I started watching men's football properly. And it's odd because I maintain there was like a little generational glitch from about like 1989 to about 1993. Channel 4 broadcast the Women's FA Cup every year. So as a small child, I remember watching women's football on television. So the likes of Marianne Spacey and Karen Walker and Hope Powell when she was a player. All these names that people would recognise now as kind of legends of women's football, but they might not have seen play. I actually did see play on television. And people who are just like a couple of years younger than me don't remember that at all. So this generation of lionesses are always like we grew up not watching women's football on television. And there's just this kind of really small period when it was on television. I remember watching it. So I always knew women played football and obviously it was more difficult to follow it because it didn't have a great deal of newspaper coverage. But it wasn't kind of like a great leap for me to be following it too and to write about it and to know that there was a history there. And so I became a journalist when I left university. I started being a sports writer from 2005 onwards. 2005 was the uh, Euros in England and it didn't get a great deal of media coverage. 2007, another Women's World Cup. 2009, uh, another Euros. And I remember just trying to persuade my editor at the time that you should really be covering this Euros. England have got to the final. Let's do something about it. And they did let me do like a live blog, like a minute by minute. And of course, England lost. But I felt it was kind of like a little triumph that they'd caught enough attention that a very big national newspaper let me do a minute by minute report on it. This is kind of where we were like only 13 years ago. Yeah, 2011, I was in Germany at I remember sleeping in a luggage rack to get from Dresden to Frankfurt on an overnight train for the group stages. And then uh, 2015, I was out in Canada and there were so few of us out there reporting. We literally had like a press conference in a cafe because there was just no point trying to book a room for a big press conference because there were so few of us there. So, you know, fast forwarding to now, just seven years on from that, when, you know, UEFA are just packed out, they've got you know, they've, they're oversubscribed for accreditation. It is incredible to see the progress in such a short space of time. And yeah, it's just, just amazing to see the way that the women's game has grown uh, just in the time that I've been covering it. It does make me feel very old, obviously, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's been immense progress.
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, like you said, it's just amazing to see. I mean, you think that, I mean, it, I mean, women's football, it's been around a long time, but it was banned for a very long time as well. And since then, you know, it's trying to make waves in, in developing itself. But it's only really, you could say in the last, you know, couple of years that it's really made a, a huge push. Um, I mean, we saw, wasn't it? It was um, around 2019, I think, when the uh, WSL, you know, obviously the top division of women's football, finally uh, became fully professional. And, you know, that was only in 2019. And it just seems crazy in this day and age. Um, but, you know, obviously maybe we should get on to talking about your book um which i finished about a month ago i finished it pretty quickly after it came out because i was like i really want to read this before the euros begins um and it was brilliantly written you know allowing sort of the reader to travel through time through you know each chapter covering football from specific time periods um though you know i thought i was aware of all the sort of um pioneers and innovators um in women's football but your book actually, you know, it interviews certain people and highlights that there's so much more history and like key figures that people maybe never have heard of, um, you know, long before most of us realised who had a huge funda fundamental role in progressing women's football. Um, you know, I was born in the 90s. Um, I grew up with thinking the likes of, you know, Faye White and Katie Chapman, um, Rachel Yankee, Kelly Smith. The, to me, they were the trailblazers of our time, but it actually started, you know, almost 100 years ago with the likes of um, Nettie Honeyball and Lily Parr and, and Bella Ray. And I just think it's important that those people are, you know, given their deserved credit and appreciation for, for what they did. So I suppose, you know, what made you write your book Unsuited for Females? You know, what made you want to look at women's football in history? Yeah, well, I'd written two books, like, in the five, six years before I started working on this book. So The Roar of the Lionesses, which came out in 2016, and then The Pride of the Lionesses, which was out in 2019. And I was always very conscious that when I was writing those books, because I wanted to make sure I was giving a full view of the pyramid, I also wanted to make sure I gave kind of some historical context in there. Because I think there is a tendency, maybe, to kind of think everything is great in women's football now, it's it's a new thing, look at us go. Whereas it's really important, I think, to acknowledge that it's not a new thing. Uh, women have fought over a century to be able to play on this stage and get this kind of recognition. So it was kind of the book that a lot of people kept asking me to write in a, in a way. People kept saying to me, um, would you like to write a history, like a full history of women's football in England? And I was like... I don't want to write a full history. That's not really my kind of thing. What I'm interested in is kind of digging more deeply into people's individual experiences. And so I came up with the idea for Unsuitable for Females, um, these kind of series of pen portraits telling the story of the past kind of century and a half of women's football through like a little snapshot in time, through individuals kind of piecing their stories together to give an overview of women's football history and I guess the important thing to know is that these are just the stories that we've uncovered at the moment there are going to be hundreds and thousands more women whose stories haven't been told yet whose stories might not have even been recorded anywhere because it's really difficult to tell women's history whether that's sporting history or just general history because uh, obviously, when re when records aren't documented or digitised, it's really tough to be able to find a woman 
uh, in a census, if she's got married and changed her name and the paperwork's gone missing somewhere. It's really hard to like piece things together. Whereas with men, they leave more of a footprint quite often because they keep the same name from birth. A woman 100 years ago would definitely have changed her name on marriage. And then you're kind of thinking, oh, where's she gone? And then the additional problem with the footballers is so many of them kind of adopted stage names like Nettie Honeyball that wasn't her real name we're not even quite sure who she is we know a lot about the Nettie Honeyball character but we don't know who she actually was or whether this was a kind of a stage name or a character name that passed down across several different people so it's really difficult to uncover those first years of women's football history so the pen portraits that we have got are only a very very limited insight into what is doubtless a massively rich and exciting history and we've only just started uncovering it yeah absolutely i mean it's it's almost it's so sad to think really of how many stories have been lost over time just because like you said the the records just aren't there or women have to play under pseudonyms or false names just so that they can play the game just because that were so looked down upon by the rest of society so hopefully you know with time we'll start to uncover more stories you know the more women's football you know becomes more accepted in society i mean we've already seen just from the the women's euros a huge sort of improvement whether that's you know long standing we're not to not to know but certainly there seems to be a lot more interest than there has been at previous tournaments um and the time is you know now so hopefully those that maybe were around towards that part or you know generations that have they've passed it down those stories will slowly begin to to come to light and hopefully now they're the way things are with women's football we're starting to record everything that's happening documenting it all down so that in you know generations and years and years to come everything that we're doing right now is there available for people to to look at and to share those amazing stories but something as well in your book which came across to me was actually how supportive a lot of men were uh, to the women's cause in terms of you know accepting them into football and and helping them develop foundations i mean you know, that isn't to say that everybody was so supportive, you know, whether that was men or, you know, other women that, you know, didn't want, you know, were opposed to women playing football and it was viewed as sort of a rough sport to play, I saw. It's not ladylike, let's put it as that. Mm. But they had this fixed idea and, and narrative and, it, you know, we do face a difficult battle. So with social media having a large part to play in what people sort of how they are online obviously we see trolls uh, people having banter to go to reaction yet in your book you detail about you know fathers setting up football teams for the daughters um young boys allowing girls to join in with them you know playing football in the streets um the the likes of Vic Akers you know practically setting up and starting Arsenal women and and Harry Bat creating England's mm. team, which, you know, competed in front of 90,000 people in the Azteca Stadium um, in what was an unofficial tournament, unfortunately. But, and, you know, even today, you know, we see the likes of Ian Wright being a huge, you know, um, advocate for, for women's football. So, I mean, would you say there's enough awareness and recognition of men's involvement in supporting the game? Or, you know, should we, it, it sounds hard to say, but should we just focus on the women who continue to face, like, you know, fight in the face of adversity? It's a difficult one. It is. I know exactly what you're saying. It's, you feel a little bit uneasy, don't you? Kind of giving men credit for just being, you know, nice about things and not being dreadful. And <laughs> that's both, that's kind of like awful for the women who were working so hard to support other women, but also really awful for men because most of them are nice. It's fine. But yes, you're absolutely right that there have been 
absolutely crucial male allies for women's football from the foundations yes and we could go back to you know Alfred Franklin who was the manager of the famous Dick Kerr ladies yeah, he mentioned Harry Batt and then of course the uh, first England managers of the official England team they were men too so we've always had male involvement in women's football supporting these women who have fought for the right to be able to play I mean go back to the 1966 World Cup winners Bobby Moore and Jeff Hurst and Martin Peters were three of the leading lights in the campaign to have a women's World Cup you know it's it, it, it wasn't that uncommon but it just wasn't picked up popularly and I guess it'd be difficult to do that when the FA were just still kind of saying no 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 no, no matter how high profile um, you are and I think the likes of Ian right now they have a slightly different role because uh, you, you mentioned the social media trolling and that kind of stuff I think a lot of the men who are noisily against women's football now or women's involvement in football they won't listen to to women so what they need is they need men to call them out and it's the same as with a lot of um, sexism that we see in society isn't they're not going to listen to women saying no you're wrong but other men that they respect saying no you're wrong they might listen to that's why that uh that call out video he did on alan sugar was so good during the euros telling him it was foolishness um yeah I mean, that kind of stuff, that kind of unequivocal call-out has, has been absolutely fantastic. And using his platform and his position to to, uh, to advocate for the women's game. And I think it's great. And I think more men could afford to do that too. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I suppose as well with Ian Wright, it's, um, I mean, you want sort of genuine allies. You don't want people necessarily just mm. wanting to go with the flow and you know be seen to be like oh yeah i'm a pro advocate of women's football but then that was just for the the euros and then that trails off but you know ian wright you know even before the euros he's been heavily involved in say i know he has his links with arsenal but you know he regularly attends games he, he's like on um close um you know personal level with all of the players um you can see how much it means to him and that he does genuinely in like um have a passion for the for the women's game so it's so great to see and you know just hopefully in time we get more you know ian writes you know providing that representation for men in exactly what you said um hopefully more men will listen to it if it is coming from a, a man who generally enjoys women's football um but there were so many incredible details and stories in this book that i really enjoyed i mean there was there was so interesting to read i mean there was the one about um alex ferguson who stole sort of the only available helicopter in <laughs> monaco um which i when it came across it i was like really <laughs> it's, it's such a random thing to come across well, i I love that story. So what happened was um, Sylvia Gore, who was the first woman to score an official goal for England, had been uh, invited to the same UEFA ceremony as Alex Ferguson. And Sylvia passed away a couple of years ago. So I spoke to her cousin, who was her plus one at lots of these events. And Carol is not massively a football fan. She followed it because of Sylvia. So Sylvia is kind of pointing out all these famous people on their flights across. She's like, oh, look, there's Alex Ferguson. <laughs> they get off. And Alex Ferguson's getting helicoptered to the venue. And poor Sylvia and Carol are like, oh, looks like we're taking the bus then. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. It's just, it's brilliant stories like that. And then obviously, you know, that, that covers some really interesting stories, but also some quite sort of um, sad ones as well. You know, like the likes of um, Lincoln City, you know, were essentially being mm. rebranded as, as Notts County. The the rise and fall of Doncaster Bells. I mean, it's quite a shock, really, because um, I used to follow Doncaster Bells um 
when I was a little bit younger and you know they were the powerhouse of women's football um and to be honest I kind of lost track of them and I, I didn't realize just how like low that they'd fallen really um and then you know at the same time we've got the undeniable impact of of chippy um julie chip chase mm-hmm. um and the story of, of low stuff ladies um i had never heard about that so it was you know really interesting to to hear about it and um you know it's a shame as well where there's not too much information documented about them and the records and the accolades that they achieve but i mean were there parts of your research that surprised you when writing the book? Um, you know, things that were new to you or tidbits which you just knew you had to include? I guess when I started planning the book, I had an idea of what I wanted to cover roughly. But of course, I didn't know a lot of the detail of it all. So when I first planned it, I, I was intending to stop when the WSL started. And then I realised that I couldn't because I think as you mentioned, the rebranding of Lincoln as Notts County and then the way that Notts County folded, I just thought, I can't not write about that because I think that's an absolutely vital part of recent women's football history that hasn't really been talked about because, A, it's no, no one really wants to talk about a failure, I guess, and B, I think, I think the players have found it quite difficult to talk about so I, I felt quite lucky that they trusted me with that story because I think it was quite painful for them to to go over it again obviously they've all come out of it and they've gone into different and better things but to lose your job in in that way I think was quite shocking um and you mentioned the bells and again you, you have to write about the bells when you're writing about women's football history how can you not um but I, again I had to work in Julie Chipchase and the reaction to to her shocking death because I think that that came as quite a surprise to a lot of people and it was quite near my book deadline so again it was it was challenging I guess to talk to people who knew and loved Chippy about her and her legacy when the loss of her was still so raw so again I'm so grateful that people were able to talk to me about it and I guess the entire way through I felt so, so fortunate that I was able to talk to these incredible people who fought for the right for women to be able to play football um, over the past, you know, 50, 50, 60 years. So some of these women that I spoke to, they are senior citizens now, you know, they are, you know, their 70s, 80s, and they're still here to tell their stories. It's absolutely incredible that they haven't been documented formally before that i saw someone tweet last night and chris Slegg, who wrote an excellent history of the women's fa cup with pat gregory and he said you know this november will be the 50th anniversary of the first formal england international against scotland you know why aren't we having uh, a match to mark that and i was like we really should we still have most of those players around let's mark that let's you know let's give them some public recognition let's have that event because they're not going to be around forever we don't want to lose more generations of women's football history because we were too lazy to mark it or we didn't think about it at the time we thought there'd always be another chance because there isn't always another chance you need to make sure that you take these opportunities and just after England have won the Euros for the first time um to mark 50 years of the first official international, there could not be a better time to do that. Let's do it. 
Yeah, no, I was, I was just about to say, you know, strike while the iron's hot with all the interest in, um, you know, the current women's like England team. There is no better time than to, you know, educate people and teach them about all these, you know, trailblazers again and pioneers and people who've had involvement in the women's game. Exactly as he said, you know, before sort of those stories are lost or before they become, you know, almost forgotten in a certain sense, you know, bring them to the limelight, give them the sort of recognition that they should have had all of those years ago and, and you know give them it now um again just you know that impetus of continuing because i mean this is something that obviously um the likes of ian wright and alex scott spoke about um you know after the game is we don't want this to just be you know everybody is getting involved with women's football and it only lasts for a few months we don't want a honeymoon period we want this to be sustained and to be continuous so we need to be looking at various different ways in which we can continue to engage interest i mean obviously it's been really good that we've arranged that friendly with um, the usa and it's already sold out and mm. that's going to be huge because obviously they're world champions but again you know little things like that i mean i didn't even know that um you know that it's 50 years so you know getting it out there and being like more public and and you know the market inside of things and but yeah, obviously the the current England players, you know, were um, mentioning the impact that the previous, you know, England players have had. Um, you know, they've led the way, they've paved the way. We've had Jill Scott who performed in the two thousand and nine um, Euros, who who just missed out, and you know, obviously it's it's huge for her to to get that medal finally after for all of these years. So it's so good to see that they're as much as they're enjoying the success, they are recognizing those that helped them get to this point what's your thoughts on the current england squad and this this victory I mean, what does it mean for the future of women's football oh it, it's huge and i think it yeah you're right to acknowledge that they've been talking about the history and i think that's been a deliberate stance of the camp i'm fairly sure that it's something that serena viegman has deliberately done i know that each uh, member of the squad received a copy of professional jean williams's book um called A History of Women's Football Before the Tournament. So that kind of understanding where they fit in the grand scheme of women's football has been part of the camp uh, when they approach the tournament. And I think it's really paid off. And I think it's been wonderful to see them acknowledge it. But yeah, I mean, seeing this win and then seeing them use that platform immediately to not only pay tribute to the pioneers, but to call for greater football facilities for the next generations. I think that's absolutely fantastic. I think it just shows their awareness of the struggles that women's football has gone through to get to this point. Because these women who have just won the Euros, they haven't had an easy time of it. I mean, Ellen White, for example, I'm sure you've seen that uh, newspaper from 1999, her local, local newspaper front page, and it calls her Soccer Girl, which is hilarious to start with. But... Um, <laughs> She wasn't allowed to play um, in a league dominated by boys. The league wouldn't let her play. Um, just, can you imagine? Ellen White wasn't allowed to play in the in the league, in her local league. Um, and I believe what happened after that was that her, her dad set up a girls' team for her to play for. So this is, this is our current England team have gone through stuff like that, that they weren't allowed to play. And they've travelled the country and they've gone to training week in week out and all that kind of stuff and they've got past all that and they've brought back the first senior trophy that an England football team has won in nearly 60 years that's that is incredible and we're seeing an immense payoff you mentioned you know, how recently 
the WSL went fully professional. We're seeing like really quick results of investment in players, in the infrastructure, in the coaching, in the domestic competition. If you invest in it, you'll get the return. And people have always kind of worried about women's football going, oh, well, it's not making a profit and all that kind of nonsense. You will see a return on your investment. Just back women's sport, back women. They'll, they'll, they'll get the job done. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I have this argument almost every day, if I'm honest, <laughs> on social media, because it just frustrates me to no end, because it's like, well, you saying, oh, you know, the standard of women's football is poor, that, that's not going to do anything. It's like, well, if you invest money into it, support into it, it is going to grow. Um, You know, that's exactly where, you know, how the men's game is where it's at now is because of all of that back and you know the things that you know when they um started up the premier league and mm-hmm. you know obviously all the monies and the sponsorships that came with that that the only reason that it's one of the best leagues in the world now is because of all those things and i'm not saying that that's going to happen in, the, in a year's time for women's football but if you give it time if you give it the support you give it the money that it needs uh, particularly you know starting from grassroots making sure that girls get um appropriate training and coaching and facilities then you know we're going to see a better standard of football played so something we've always been proud of in the North East and Sutherland is our ability to have produced fantastic talent over the years. Um, you know, obviously in this tournament, we've seen the likes of Lucy Bronze, Jill Scott, um, Beth Mead, who've, you know, come through our first team and have, you know, gone on to join some brilliant teams and represent England. Um, however, understandably, you know, women's football like changes and things have happened quite dramatically, like we touched on before, that um, there's been a rapid sort of, potentially improvement in the way that things are now um you know in the prologue of your book you you know you spoke to people that and that you'd interviewed and asked them their thoughts of modern day football and for the future and I was quite interested actually by um you know some of the responses in that um you know it's a top of a conversation we have quite regularly um in which you want women's football to be taken seriously but at the same time do we want to be you know, have the same model as men's football because, you know, I find myself increasingly falling out of love with um, sort of mainly, you know, English football and the, the top leagues because it's just so business and money orientated. I mean, you know, what's your thoughts currently, you know, on women's football in terms of sort of the domestic leagues? Um, you know, are we seeing a positive change, you know, or are we becoming, you know, business and money orientated? Yeah, it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, we saw, you know, in the days after the Euros win, we saw the reports that the Premier League were being approached to take over and Emma Haynes was saying she thinks it's a great idea. And I can understand um, the big clubs thinking that because, you know, having an organisation with commercial experience take over is probably going to be what they want to see. But I think it's important to also bear in mind the unique character I guess the personality of women's football because it's not a direct reflection of the men's game um it has a very different atmosphere for for starters but also look at the setup I mean we've got a much smaller much smaller league and I know this talks about expanding perhaps which is another matter entirely but look at the teams we've got in the championship you know Lewis um Durham Coventry United if the Premier League come in and want to make it more like the men's game what happens to those clubs what happens to the kind of more community focus the more um i guess community attached clubs that aren't attached to a men's parallel club that's been bankrolling them with a different model of running what happens to them so i think there are special characteristics special parts of the women's game that 
that I would want to see preserved. I wouldn't want to see it necessarily reflect the men's game directly. So I think that needs to be borne in mind when we're talking about having a different organisation take over the running of the women's game. Yeah, definitely. And like what you touched on before with the sort of uh, the women's game is, is so different to the men's game. I mean, one thing that I love in particular is the um, how inclusive it is. I mean, um, obviously, you know, th- there's no sort of trouble within the stands. You know, fans of both teams can just sit with each other. There has been conversations as to whether we should be trying to make it a bit more... Um, I don't want to say tribal necessarily, but, you know, having designated away stands to create a bit more of an atmosphere as opposed to it being very sort of family orientated. But, you know, the inclusivity, I mean, we have, you know, great representations of the, the LGBTQ plus um, community, um, you know, it's just accepted in women's football. There's no problem with that. You, I mean, um, not to my knowledge, but I'm never aware of any incidences of, you know, um, of homophobia or racist incidences within the game. Um, because I think, you know, women in football, we know what it's like to be oppressed in a certain sense. So we're very inclusive of, of, of everybody being involved in the game. But, you know, something I've unfortunately come across a lot with, um, you know, playing football, um, following it, talking about it is a lot of, you know, sexist abuse online, you know, most of it I can kind of just brush off my back, but some comments or messages I've received in the past have been pretty appalling um, and disgusting in nature, and you just think, why? Why are you sending this? I mean, you don't have to talk about anything that would make you uncomfortable, but have you ever, you know, experienced sexism? And, you know, if you have, you know, how have you overcome with overcome it, dealt with it? I mean, is there any words of advice for women trying to make it in the industry if I think back to when I first started going to football I think when you're a little girl going to matches with your dad you're kind of like you just you just acknowledge as a kid then if you're a a teenage girl going to football by yourself you're suddenly fair game so yes I remember the kind of heckles that I would get as a teenage girl you know I and I know I ignored it at the time now kind of looking back on it you know 25 years later it's kind of like that's just absolutely hideous that poor 15 year old girl who listened to that kind of nonsense I feel I feel bad for 15 year old me really and wish that I could have done something about it at the time but I guess you don't think about it and I think quite often in football and this isn't just with sexism you kind of you try to ignore the bad stuff because you love football so much, you try to make excuses for it almost. And I think we kind of try and persuade ourselves, you know, we love football, we'll, we'll carry on, we'll push on. But then you also kind of have to think about the women who decided, I can't be bothered with this. I don't want to put up with this week in, week out. And, you know, think of all the talent we've lost to the game, not just as players, but as, you know, TV broadcasters, as writers, as coaches, as referees who would have been put off football for whatever reason. And I think you, know, you said there's no homophobia and racism in the women's game. I think there probably have been elements. I think it's probably a little bit too idealised to say that there isn't. I can think of one very famous incident only a few years ago of involving some quite big names in the women women's game. So it's not perfect, but I do think it is better Um, than the men's game and I think a lot of that is because it isn't quite so tribal and I understand why the authorities and clubs do want to kind of appeal to let's say men's team supporters because it's it's a quick way to get people through the gate saying look this is part of your club come and cheer them on and that's going to get people through the turnstiles but again I think that kind of slightly friendlier more welcoming atmosphere 
has been a real asset to the women's game. But having said that, if there's more demand for tickets and we're in bigger grounds, perhaps it's going to be more difficult to preserve that anyway. So perhaps this is, a, this is a new era of women's football and I'm just being a little bit nostalgic for what we've had in the past and we can't have both that welcoming atmosphere and money and investment and progress in the women's game. Perhaps we can't have both. So perhaps we're at a, a real real turning point of the women's game now. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's so hard to kind of decide how you want it to go because like I touched on before, you know, we want it to do so well, but it's, you know, what potential sacrifices need to be made to progress it to that next level. And you, you just, you never know whether that's going to be a, a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I follow the, the women's championship quite a lot with supporting Sutherland and obviously I've got Durham who are a local team to me as well. Um, and we saw, you know, last year what happened with Coventry United and you kind of, um, you want to appeal and and make women's football better is you know what can you lose and um where we might have more situations similar to what happened at Coventry that's the the concern so I think it's about doing things in a sort of steady manner and Mm. you're not rushing to anything you know things need to be fought through properly before you know we make an ultimatum or a, a final decision you know working things out logistically looking at the finances, looking at the marketing side of things, looking, you know, speaking to the fans as well, because it's like, you know, what what do they want at the end of the day? Because um, like I touched on before, like I've lost a lot of interest in sort of um, men's football, particularly in the top divisions, because I just think they've lost all of that sort of community outreach that they had, um, mm. you know, kind of like what you touched on right at the start, how you were able to just interview players with, you know, no problems whatsoever because um, it was just so easy back then. Whereas now it's uh, so many people that you've got to get in contact with and um, you can ask them a question and they can't answer it. And so it's it's whether, you know, we want the women's game to, to head that way. Um, but I suppose, obviously, we've been talking for quite some time. But um, before we wrap up, I just wanted to, you know, again, thank you for taking the time to come out on our podcast um, to talk today. Um, and it was just to give you really a chance to, you know, promote, um, advertise or talk about any work projects that you come up. Obviously, um, I definitely advocate for everybody to read um, Carrie's book, um, Unsuitable. Um, it was absolutely fantastic. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Um but, you know, obviously you've got your three books out on the Lionesses, um, which will be likely available on all, you know, retailers and websites. But um, you've also dabbled in writing on wrestling and academia too, haven't you? So <laughs> is there um, anything you'd like to promote or talk about? Yeah, um, I guess I just wanted to thank you for having me on. I mean, I guess it, it's important to say that... Um, Women's football, even though we've had this massive success this summer, it's still commercially seen as very niche. So um, if anyone follows me on Twitter, um, you'll have seen I've been you know, tweeting about the book and sharing links, etc., etc. Just because I'm, it's so difficult to, to prove that it's actually something that appeals to readers. So, um, yeah. Please do if you if you've read if you've read the book, please do read a uh, leave a review on whatever website you bought it from. If you haven't read it, then please try and get a hold of it. I'm very happy to sign any copies. Just get in touch with me on Twitter, and um, yeah, I'm always happy to talk on Twitter too. So just drop me a line. Um, yeah, and you're right. I have written about wrestling before. I would love to write some more about wrestling, but I currently do have another project related to women's football on the go. So fingers crossed that uh, the Lioness is winning. We'll uh, push that over the line and I'll have an exciting announcement to make soon. 
Oh, fantastic. So we'll have to keep our eyes and ears peeled. Um, so just a reminder that obviously club football returns very soon uh, in late August um, and that we'll be writing lots of articles over at Roka Report. And we've got quite a few pieces already in the works that will be coming out soon. Um, please like, subscribe, share and leave a five star review on your podcast platform of choice. And you can find us on all of your usual socials under R&R Lasses or through our link tree. Um, once again, a big thank you to Carrie Dunn for joining us on this episode. Um, thank you to everyone who listened and thank you to Big Fat Big whose music will see us out. Cheers and see you in the next one.